Bibles up, notebooks out, pens at the ready, hearts anticipating, minds razor sharp, (laughs) eyes wide open, ready to feed on the Word of God. We'll be in Leviticus. Chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles. Saturday morning, I woke, I wasn't woke, I, I awakened, let's be clear, do not consider myself woke, much more old school. Anyway, I awakened on Saturday morning, and I looked out my window, and I said, well, that's no good. But I did. That's what I said. Ask Cheryl. And she said the same thing that Jake just said. Oh. <laughs> and I saw the snow and, and, you know, piling up, piling up on our porch and piling up out in the backyard and piling up in the front yard. And, and I thought, That's, this does not look good. So it didn't take long to cancel Sunday services, as you all know. But I had this teaching in Leviticus 25, the first 22 verses, ready to go. I was so excited to to share it and to bring it and a lot of prophecy in there, really excited. No problem, right? Just just put it off and teach it on Wednesday. Well, it's not a good Wednesday teaching. I mean, I guess it would be, but it's, it's, it fits so much more in line with our prophecy update series that we've been doing on Sunday morning, so I'm gonna skip ahead. We're gonna skip the first 22 verses of Leviticus 25 and go right on picking up in verse 23. And then on Sunday, we're going to come back and we're going to take the prophetic look that I wanted to take last Sunday. But we do need a a little bit of working knowledge of a very special time that is described in the first half of Leviticus 25. In fact, from verse 9 to 22, it's mentioned five times this happening, this event, this season, five times in its initial introduction, which I think is perfect because, of course, five is the number of grace in the Bible. And this event is all about grace. It's the stuff of pure grace. We'll see it another nine times in the rest of Leviticus 25. We'll see it nine more times tonight. And then we'll see it another six times in Leviticus 27, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. And finally, we'll hear it one more time after that. Numbers chapter 36, verse four, which tells us, when the jubilee of the sons of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. So their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers, the Jubilee. Jubilee. Now we're going to really get into this on Sunday morning. Go back and think it through and process it together. But, but tonight, you got to have just this much. Jubilee is the word in Hebrew, yovel. The yovel. It literally translates a long, continuous blast of the mature ram's horn. Okay, we're not talking about those little ram's horns that you can get as a souvenir in Israel these days. We're talking about the big mamma jamma. We're talking about that huge horn that, you know, the blast is huge. If you watch Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, you've heard it. You know, the shofar is what it's also called. But it's also the yovel. The yovel, the shofar, both speaks of the ram's horn or the mature ram. And yovel, the jubilee, this wonderful appointment, it really is an appointment of the Lord. It's not one of the seven appointments of Leviticus 23, 
but it's an appointment of the Lord nonetheless, and it's super special, the Yovel, the Jubilee. Yovel also can mean, also can translate to recall or to release. And so every fall, and you all know this, Bible students, every fall in Israel on the first day of the seventh month, the month of Tishri, the ram's horn is blown. Right, that's the day called Yom Teruah. Rosh Hashanah today, the civic holiday, but Yom Teruah, the day of blowing, that's on Tishri the first. But, but check this out. In the 50th year, literally counted out from when they first set foot in the land, they would go seven times seven years, 49 years. And then in the 50th year, on the 10th day of the seventh month, the month of Tishri, which is Yom Kippur, on that year, they were to blow the trumpet again, the Yovel. It signaled the start of the year of Jubilee. If you look back at verse 10 in chapter 25, it says, you shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his family. The year of jubilee, know this much, was all about release. Every 50 years in Israel, the 50th year was released from all debt. Cut up your credit cards, baby, because they can't charge you anymore. Hallelujah. It was release from slavery or indentured servitude to be able to go back to your family. Your slavery's over in the year of Yovel. It was release even of the land itself. The land would be released and given back to its original inheritance, its original ownership. The Jubilee. Oh, to know that kind of release. I mean, can you imagine we had a law in America on the books that said every 50th year, all debt's canceled. Everything is released. Everything goes back to the way it is supposed to be. Wonderful release. But, but wait a minute. 20 mentions in Leviticus 25 and 27. One mention in numbers. And you'll never hear the word again. Not in the Bible. Yovel, it's like it becomes dust on the page. It disappears from the teaching. It's just gone. Now, the theme of the Yovel, of the Jubilee, that the idea of, of release, man, that is throughout the scriptures. That redemptive release, it runs throughout the Bible. It flows from the heart of God. He's all about releasing us from our debt and our, and our imprisonment. But the Yovel itself, it just disappears. Why? Apparently, the Jewish people lost track of it and never kept it. This glorious, wonderful year of release for all people, they got into the land and in the 50th year did not celebrate it. 50 years later, did not celebrate it. 50 years after that, forgotten. The Yovel, the year of Jubilee. As I said, dust on the page. So much is lost when people refuse the release of God. When he offers you release, when he offers you redemption, when people say no to that, so much is lost that is so good and so wonderful. Some reject redemption fully. 
I mean, they just say no to it. I'm talking about the non-believer who, for whatever reason, either neglects or ignores salvation. By the way, side note, if, if you haven't heard, some of you have heard about this, but on Sunday, Eric Metaxas, Eric Metaxas is the author of the book Bonhoeffer, fantastic book. He wrote Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce and the slave trade in, in England. Now, Eric Metaxas was a guest speaker at Calvary Chino Hills on Sunday morning. And he does a talk that you need to listen to. It's about an hour long. He's, he's funny. He's engaging. He's not, it's not a Bible teaching, not a Bible study. He doesn't crack the Bible once. But he's talking a little bit about his own life and a new book that he's just written that's called Fish Out of Water. It talks about his own conversion to Christ. But in discussing this, he talks about what would Dietrich Bonhoeffer do in America today? How would he be? As, as compared to how he was in Nazi Germany or in Germany of the 1930s, which is not that unlike America of 2021. And so it's, it's a fascinating talk, but one of the things that he says in it that really caught my attention, he said, you know, as Christians, we need to think about the non-believer differently. So we have this tendency to have, and this is kind of human nature anyway, but an us and them mentality. There's us, the saved, and there's them, the and they're the dark, and they're the depraved, and they're the sick, and they're the dying. And, and some of that is true. But many people who are, quote, unquote, lost today, who don't know Jesus, simply just don't know Jesus. They don't know any better. They either haven't heard, or maybe they've heard snippets, but they, they just wonder, well, what does that have to do with me? I don't understand how it applies. I have a life, and I have a job, and I have a wife, and I've got things to do, so, I, you know, why, why is that necessary for me? Why would I give up my Sunday morning, you know? It, it's not this abject, dark, mean rebellion. There are so many non-believers who are in a place of just, they just don't know. And yet, in that place, fully reject the release that God offers. Anyway, if you have a chance, listen to that. Eric Metaxas, it's, it's wonderful, and you can, you can find it on YouTube. But other people, they don't reject the release of God fully. You wouldn't call that person a, a non-believer, but they reject it partially. And I'm talking about believers who discount the fullness of the promises of God. When he says to Israel, every 50th year, a complete and total release. Well, they, they believed in the Lord. They kept the feasts annually each year. They never kept the seventh year Sabbath, and they never kept the Jubilee. But they could have. They have this year of complete and utter release, and they, know, they, they don't keep it. They don't fully avail themselves of the promises of God. And there are so many of us in the church who have been in the exact same place, or perhaps are right now. Oh, I believe in redemption. I believe in salvation. But all the promises of God, ah, not, not, not so sure. See, John said in John chapter 1, verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Let me ask you, did you, have you received the full release by faith? Or are you skeptical of some of the promises? Cynical of some of the stories in Scripture, perhaps? You hear something like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And you go, 
mostly. I'll receive some of that. I'm not up for all of it. I don't even quite understand all of it. And so we have this partial release. We have salvation. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking about believers who are saved by Jesus, saved by grace. But we're not availing ourselves of the full release of redemption. To walk as a people who are absolutely free in Jesus. Hung up in our lives. The flesh calls. The soul wants to figure it out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. You have it all. Have you received the full release? Now, when Paul says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, I think originally he intended Israel. He's talking about Israel. We have received every spiritual blessing. Now, by extension, the church receives the same blessing. So it's not an us versus them. It's we are grafted in. So like Israel, yes, it applies to the church. But Paul's talking about Israel. And Israel has not received the fullness of the redemption, the fullness of the blessings. And when we refuse to receive it all, we, like Israel, will find ourselves hashtag wandering in the wilderness, which is our next study. The book of Numbers, which we're going to pick up in about a week and a half or so, again, Lord willing, is all about wandering in the wilderness. Why? Because they did not receive the full release. They were released from Egypt, but they didn't receive the promises by going into the land. And so it was a partial release instead of the full release that God intended. So with that as introduction, keep this in mind Back in Leviticus 25, the Jubilee, let the Jubilee be the canvas that is the background for the rest of our teaching tonight. The Jubilee that he's just introduced and talked about and laid it before them and said, this is for you and I want you to do this every 50th year. And then in verse 23, picking up there, the Lord says, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine and you are aliens and sojourners with me. Now I like the fact that he says with me, but he says very clearly here, and don't miss this, the land is mine. It is not yours, Israel. It is certainly not yours, nations of the world. The land is mine. And that's why this is such a big deal. Why the land of Israel is such a big deal. Here's a sampling, just listen to this, of God's thoughts regarding his land. Joel chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. Joel chapter 3, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. My land. Or I like this in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8. It says, your land, O Emmanuel. You realize when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was born into the land that belonged to him? Emmanuel's land. And Ezekiel 36, verse 5. Surely in the fire of my jealousy, I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves. 
as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel. Say to the mountains, say to the hills, to the ravines, to the valleys. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath because you have endured the insults of the nations. Who's endured the insults? The land. This land is my land. This is not your land. <laughs> you ever wondered about this? Why is the land, the property, the boundaries of Israel such a big deal to God? I remember years ago being asked the question back in the barn days. Someone said, is Israel the land or is Israel the people? And the answer is yes. Yes. But God clearly makes a division between the two. When in, Here in verse 23 he says, the land is mine. Y'all, Israel, people, you're sojourners on it. You are aliens on it. All the people of Israel. God says, this land belongs to me. It is not open for sale, barter, or political negotiation. Why is Israel such a big deal to Pastor Rick? Why does Pastor Rick talk about Israel all the time? Because it's God's land. Why does it matter politically? Because it's God's land. It is not ours. By the way, Joe Biden did call Benjamin Netanyahu today, so glad to hear that. This land is mine, God says, which makes it the most significant property on planet Earth. Now all the earth is mine, the Lord says in another place, but this land I have chosen for myself. And I, interesting, he says, you are aliens and sojourners with me. Aliens is garim, that's foreigners. So the Jewish people in their own land are foreigners there because the land is not theirs. It is the Lord's and he has lent it out to them to tend and to care and to cultivate and to nurture. He's given it to them, but it's his land. He calls them sojourners, tosabim, which literally translates strangers. They are resident aliens in a land that belongs to God. Then and now. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 19, the Lord says, But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you and go serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you and this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. Talking about the temple in Jerusalem, his city, in Israel, his land. Because it all belongs to him. It is not theirs. We don't stand for Israel as a land simply because of Israel, the people, although that's an important part of it. We stand for the land because the land belongs to God. Verse 24. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. Why? It's God's land, so you've got to buy it back. You gotta pay it back. You gotta pay the redemption price. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it and so return to his property. 
But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of his purchaser until the year of the Yovel, the Jubilee. But at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his property. You've got to make redemption. The word redemption is geulah. Yeah, geulah. I'm not Hebrew, folks. <laughs> Practice these things, but I'm not. It's geulah. But here's what's important about geulah. It means the right or the price of redemption, but it comes from the root word ga'al, which may sound familiar to some of you. Maybe goel sounds even more familiar. The goel is the Hebrew word. Brandy knows this. She's been teaching out of this for our ladies. It's the kinsman redeemer the Goel. You are to redeem this land as my kinsman, the Lord, is saying. This is the law right here, verses 23 through 28. This is the law of the kinsman redeemer. The land is to be redeemed by the people of Israel because it belongs to God. If you have to sell a piece to one another, if you have to sell outside of your tribe, that's all fine, but you got to redeem it. You got to buy it back. And at the year of Jubilee, it all reverts to the original inheritance of the tribes. Why, Lord? Because it's my land, you see. And the law of the kinsman redeemer, it plays in so beautifully, it's so romantically in the book of Ruth. And since Brandy's already taught through it, you're finished, right? You got a few more left? Where are you? Are you in chapter four yet? I'm just going to read it as an intro for Brandy's lady study. Check this out. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 says, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke, this would be the kinsman redeemer, the close relative, was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, backstory for this, what's happening is there's this land that belongs to Naomi. Well, Naomi's been out of the land for, the while, for a while. Both of her sons and their daughters, or her daughters-in-law, the sons died. She had the daughters-in-law. One took off. The other one, Ruth, stayed with her. Where you go, I'll go, and your people will be my people, and your God, my God, says Ruth, the Moabite outsider. And so they come back into the land, and Naomi's got this land. And so it needs to be redeemed. Well, there's someone ahead of Boaz in line to be able to redeem the land. Now, the backstory, the setup to all this so far is there's a little romantic thing going on between Ruth and Boaz by now. Boaz is taking a look at Ruth and going, mm-hmm, yep, that's for me. But there's this land issue, and the problem is that because Ruth belongs to Naomi and Naomi owns the land, that this is a package deal. He can't just marry Ruth. So watch what he does. Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And so he, the kinsman redeemer, sat, turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. By the way, that's the basis of the synagogue. Just side note. You have to have 10 men in a city, 10 Jewish men, and you can have a synagogue. And that's where it, kind of the basis of it. Verse 3. Then he said to the closest relative, the kinsman redeemer, the goel, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here, before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me and, uh, that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you, 
says Boaz. He's playing a game here that's just beautiful. He's saying, you need to buy it. And if you can't, well, then I'm stuck with it. I love it. And so he says, well, I'm, I will redeem it, says this Goel, this kinsman redeemer. And then Boaz said, well, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it. <laughs> this is a package deal, bro. Buy the land. You got Naomi and, and this Moabite gal, too. And he's like, okay. Wow, look at the time. Got to go. You know? And so he says, I, I can't redeem it. I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption. I cannot redeem it. And you just see Boaz going, <laughs> one for me. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of the land to confirm any matter. A man must remove his sandal and give it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. And Boaz said to the elder, and I'll let, I'll let uh, Brandy, you can explain that to the women. The sandal removal, I'll leave that to you. See how I just did that? <laughs> and so the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it yourself. He removed his sandal. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon, the sons. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, to be my wife, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman or the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. And of course, Ruth would. And Boaz would. Because Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David the king. And Matthew then continues right down the line of David and in Matthew chapter one, verse 16 says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And what's so cool about how God weaves this all in scripture, even all the way back here in Leviticus 23, we're going through land and property. The land is God's land. We get that. And then he starts talking about redeeming the land. What does that have to do with anything? It had to be redeemed. Because the land had to be redeemed back by Boaz so that he could marry Ruth so that they could have their children who would have their children all the way down to the line of David, the lineage of Messiah, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is our kinsman redeemer. He's the whole point of the book of Ruth. Sorry to pop that bubble. I'm sure you've already said that. He's the point. He comes along. He redeems his bride who, by the way, was a Gentile, I love that part, putting on flesh and, and paying the full price, the full and total price of redemption with his life's blood, Jesus is our Goel. And God's establishing that right here, setting it up with this whole idea of redeeming the land. But, but there's more to this. Listen, the land itself must be redeemed. 
So it's not just about paying the redemption price for a person here, as with Ruth. It's about the land itself. The land has to be cleansed. The land has to be paid for. The land has to be redeemed. And Deuteronomy 32, verse 43 says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. So we'll get to the people in a minute. But the land is so significant that Jesus, understand that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus atoned for the land. That has paid the price of the bloodshed and the brutality and the sin that had soaked into the very land itself. Jesus bought it back, the goel. He bought back the land and he bought back his bride. And this is what he's done. But what goes with that, and you need to understand, if the redemption price for the land, that is, the blood of Jesus is rejected, blood is still required for redemption. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 63, who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Here comes Messiah. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And my, their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption. By the way, that's what they called the Yovel, the Jubilee. But it's not called the Jubilee here. He just says, my year of redemption has come. The year of Jubilee, the Yovel that God establishes in Leviticus 25, this establishment is all about anticipating the ultimate redemption of the land, the ultimate release of the land, which will happen when Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives again, when he comes back. The land itself will know Jubilee like it never has. Every, every tribe was to revert. All the land was to revert. Every 50 years, this gifted inheritance from God the Father, and it was to be a prophetic picture every half century in Israel of the Jubilee that would come with Jesus, that would come with Messiah. But again, they never kept it. Verse 29 says, likewise, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it's not bought back for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser throughout its generations. It does not revert in the Jubilee. So that's just saying, look, I'm going to give you some protection for home buying. You know, if you sell your house, but then you can afford to get it back or you want to get it back within a year, you can do that. After that, though, it just, it belongs to who it belongs to. If you're in a walled city. However, verse 31, the houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in the Jubilee. So he's making a distinction between the cities all huddled together and clustered and the villages or the, the fields which would be tribal inheritance 
of the 12 tribes of Israel. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities which are their possession. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed and a house sale in the city of his possession reverts in the Jubilee for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the sons of Israel but pasture fields of their city shall not be sold for that is their perpetual possession. What's this all about? The Levites are different. So God's just establishing some boundaries and some plans for any kind of sale. If it's land, it reverts in the Jubilee. If it's just a house in a city, you got a year to redeem it but then it just becomes whoever bought it. It becomes theirs, except for the Levites. Because remember, well, you may not even know this because we haven't gotten there yet, but the Levites don't have a land inheritance. Of the tribes of Israel, every other tribe is given their portion of land, not the Levites. Their inheritance is different. I love their inheritance. You do too. Numbers 18 verse 20 tells us the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. The inheritance of the priest is the Lord. Think about that, royal priests. The inheritance of the priest is the Lord. Your inheritance, my inheritance, it's not a plot of land. It is the presence of the Father. It is being with Jesus and that was the deal with the Levites because their inheritance was the Lord. They were placed, scattered, if you will, throughout the tribes of Israel, among the cities of the people of Israel because that's what priests and pastors are supposed to do. That's what shepherds do. You're supposed to be out among all the people. And so they were, and their house then was protected as inheritance then on down the line of the Levites so they could keep their home and it would revert in the Jubilee. That's why the Levites were slightly different. Since the Lord set the Levites among the sons of Israel, their homes were always to be redeemed at the Jubilee. This land is my land, God says. He has the right to establish these rules because it belongs to him. So in verses 23 through 34 of Leviticus 25, we have God regulating his land. The rest of the chapter now, the Lord is regulating his people his servants. First, he does so regarding usury. Watch this, verse 35. Now, in the case of a countryman, and by the way, you don't have to do this, but in my Bible, right by verse 23, I write, number one, my land. And then right next to verse 35, number two, my servants. And here's the breakdown. Here's the division between Israel the land and Israel the servants. First, he talks about the land, my land, and now he's going to talk about the servants, my servants. In the case, verse 35, in case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take care of him. By the way, the word countryman there you might note is brother, kinsman, not kinsman, redeemer, but just a bro, a relative of yours. Verse 36, he says, do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. In other words, I gave you everything you have. 
Don't make money on it. Don't offer something to someone else and take interest from a brother, from a family member to make money off of them when I gave you everything for free. <laughs> it all belongs to you because of me. Don't go ripping each other off. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, to be your God. Verse 39, if a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells, okay, hold on, hold on right there, wait a minute, before I get to selling himself. So verse 35 through 38 is simply about making money, charging interest on a brother or a family member in Israel. They were not allowed to do it. Now, Jewish bankers have gotten really good charging interest to everybody else. But they were not to charge interest to a brother, or sister, mother, father, or relative in Israel. Don't rip off a brother. Especially, do not charge interest to someone who is in hardship or poverty. You help them because that's what God does. You care, you show compassion because that's, that's the heart of the Father and that's what he did for all Israel anyway. And then moving from usury, now he looks at slavery for my servants. If a countryman, verse 39 of yours, becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man. As if he were a sojourner, he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. What if he sells himself to you as a slave in the 47th year? In the 50th year, he goes free. What if he sells himself in the 40th year? In the 50th year, he goes free. What about the 49th year? He works for, a year, for you for a year, and he's free. That's the way it works. 50th year was always that set year. And so he shall be with you not as a slave, but like an employee. Now, I don't know if any of our employees here at the bridge consider themselves slaves. I hope not. But there should be a difference in, in how you treat a countryman, a brother, again, who says, look, I, I'm, I'm flat broke. I can't pay any of my bills. I can't do anything. Can I serve you? Can I work for you? And they become, as it were, a slave, but it's an indentured servant, and it's a servitude that you treat them as an employee. So you take care of them. Again, that's the whole idea. He shall then go out from you, that is in the Jubilee, verse 41. He shall go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants. Note that. This land is my land. These servants are my servants. The land belongs to God. The people all belong to God. They're my servants whom I brought up from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. And you shall not rule over him with severity, but are to revere your God. He says that twice. Revere your God. Now once again here, we have this, this, this picture here. We have the, 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 the interest, don't rip off a brother. We have slavery, treat a brother well. So if a fellow Israelite uh, sells himself to you, they are to be treated as an employee and released in the Jubilee. Now, Further, it says, read on, verse 44, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. So you can buy slaves from outside of Israel. Then too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition and out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them 
to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. They don't go free at the Jubilee. But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. So the brother, the countryman, can become an indentured servant, but treated as an employee and then released in the Jubilee. An impoverished Israelite can sell himself into slavery to a non-Israelite sojourner even, but by law he must still be treated as hired and released in the Jubilee. So even if you have an alien living in Israel who's not a Jew or who's not Hebrew and he buys one of the Hebrew children for a slave, the law still applies at Jubilee, that guy goes free. Even if the buyer, the slave owner, if you will, is not himself Hebrew, the Hebrew slave still gets his freedom. It still works that way. And then verse 47, continuing. Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you becomes sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him to sell himself to a stranger who's sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, law of the kinsman redeemer, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. And then he, he then with his purchaser shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the numbers of, number of years. It's like the days of a hired man. He shall be with him. If there are still many years, he shall refund part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall so calculate with him in proportion to his years, he is to refund the amount for his redemption. If you're not a math or, or a mortgage guy, don't worry about it. Just God's saying, be fair. Be fair to one another. And then he says in verse 53, like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his sons with him. Why? For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants who I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So again, what all this is talking about is the kinsman redeemer can step in and redeem any relative at any time. A relative who is an indentured servant, let's say from the tribe of Judah. Someone else from Judah can come along and go, I'm going to go ahead and pay his redemption price and set him free from his servitude. That's the point of the section. Again, this is my land, God says. These are my people. Therefore, my redemption applies. But one more thing to note here before we go on to chapter 26. And that is this. Notice the treatment of the brother in Israel was compelled by one thing. The fear of the Lord. Why should we do that? The fear of the Lord. If you look back at verse 36. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God. Revere is fear. Same word, yare. Yare ka eloche. Revere your God. Again, in verse 43, you shall not rule over him, talking about the slave, with severity, but are to fear your God. He says it twice. What does that mean? It means to abuse or to take advantage of another person 
is to lack the fear of God. In other words, if you can't, or if you can actually exploit, if you can abuse another, you really don't fear the Lord. I think that applies today. If you can take advantage of another human being, you're not fearing the Lord. And especially if it's a brother or sister in the church, a fellow Christian, if you can take advantage or abuse someone like that, you're not fearing the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord recognizes that, first of all, all people are his creation. Secondly, all people within the church are his children. That's the bottom line, by the way, for us loving each other, even if we don't like each other, is that you belong to him. You are his child. I am his child. And because we're children, I got to love you. If for no other reason, for the fear of the Lord, the reverence and the awe that I hold for God, God who says, I love Jake. I've chosen Jake. Jake belongs to me. Therefore, I love Jake because God's chosen him. Now, I happen to like Jake too, so that helps. But the point is the fear of the Lord is what compels all of this. All of, treating my people right. Why? Because you fear me. Revere me. Honor me by treating my servants the way they need to be treated. And Jesus pushed it a step further. Jesus, I mean, do this. Add the fear of the Lord to the redemption paid by Christ, our Goel. And you have a truly divine motivation to love each other. For the love of Christ controls us, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Why should I care about anyone? Fear of the Lord. Why should I care about my brothers and sisters in Christ? I am controlled by the love of Christ. I am compelled by his love that I must love you. By the way, you must love me. Let's go on to chapter 26. In chapter 26 now, it's interesting because we're coming down to it. We have one more chapter after this. And Leviticus 26 does a remarkable thing, and it's incredibly prophetic, so we're going to follow this through. But it brings the holiness of the book. It brings it all together by a statement in contrast, a chapter, if you will, in contrast. And you can see this in your chapter headings, but it's obedience versus disobedience. The contrast of blessing versus catastrophe. In chapter 26, the if-then phrase is used over and over and over. God's saying to Israel, if you do this, then I will do this. But if you do this, then I will do this. And we get this if-then back and forth, which reminds us that the Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses, is conditional. It's the only one that is. Remember that as we go through this. Israel is given a clear choice of condition. If you do this, I will do this. Verse 1. God says, you shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, I and the Lord your God. He's just covered three commandments. You shall, verse two, keep my Shabbats. Just covered another one. 
and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, so here's all the rest, so as to carry them out, then, then I shall give you rains in their season. So the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing floor will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. Verses four and five, he's just talked about productivity and prosperity. Verse six, I shall also grant you peace. Peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land, but you shall chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. He's talking about power. I'm gonna give you power if you'll, do these things, then, then I will do this for you. And by the way, I love this. You will chase your enemies, they'll fall before you. Five of you will chase a hundred. There's a fantastic story, actually there are many of them, of the wars of Israel. And one in the Six-Day War, when two tank commanders, so about six Israelis, were sitting just over a ridge, and an entire battalion of Syrian tanks were ready to take Israel. And I, I don't even remember the, the completeness of the story. I wish I did. But they start to come over the ridge and someone says, there are Israelis over there. Run! And they turned and they went back. There were just two little tanks. Nobody else was even there. Five of you will chase a hundred. So prophecy fulfilled right there. It's a great story. I'll have to look it up and give it to you in full. But then he continues. He says in verse 9, So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. Promise. So he's telling you, look, if you guys, if you'll just do these things, then I'm going to give you productivity and prosperity and peace and power and promise. Verse 10, you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new provision provision you're never going to run out of anything my kids were asking me today dad are we rich I said I'm rich you have nothing <laughs> but we were just talking about this and it was actually David and Naomi thought that was hilarious she cracked up David's like dad so does that make me rich no you're you're as poor as they come son but I have everything no I, we were talking about how how by some standards, we wouldn't be considered rich. We would be considered, you know, middle-class Americans. And yet by other standard, we have clothes for our backs and a roof over our head. We have food in the fridge. We never lack for a meal. We are so richly blessed. I was going to say filthy rich. No, we're so blessed. Am I rich? You better believe I am rich. Provided for in every single way. There's no lack. So provision, he promises Israel. If then, he says in verse 11, moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so you would not be their slaves and I broke the bars of your yoke 
and made you walk erect, not bent over carrying bricks like slaves, but, but like free men and women. And I did all this for you. This is the basis of everything. And it's interesting, John Corson once called these seven things the seven sweet peas of faith. Seven sweet peas for your garden, productivity, your fruit will flourish and prosperity and peace and power and promise and provision and presence. And when you read down this list, think about this, my friends. Every one of these, we could do a seven-week series on this. And every individual one of, things, one of these things are things that everybody wants. Everybody. I'm not just talking Christians. Everybody in the world, every human being wants to be productive, wants prosperity, wants peace, wants power, wants to have the promises given fulfilled, wants provision in their life, and every human being, believers and non-believers alike, want to know where they came from, want to know the presence of God. Everyone. He lays out this list of, honestly, every possible thing I can even imagine ever wanting and says, Israel, I will do this for you. If, if you do what I ask, what did he ask? Back in verse two, keep my Shabbats, reverence my sanctuary, walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. In other words, I want you to rest, I want you to worship, and I want you to keep my word. If you'll do that, if you will rest, and if you will come to worship, and if you will keep my word, all three, by the way, things that benefit us. We're not talking about a harsh set of standards or law or rules like Jake was saying at communion. It's the only faith I know in the entire history of the world where we're not given these standards and requirements to prove ourselves worthy. God says, I want you to rest and I want you to worship. Is worship a hardship for anybody? I love it. So much peace and joy comes with worship and rest and I want you to keep my word. Here you go. I don't have to come up with anything. I just show up, kick back, worship God, and keep his word. And he says, if you'll do that, then I will do all of the rest. Blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace in obedience. And it's all cultivated by rest, worship, and keeping his word. You don't even have to have a green thumb. You just have to have a Bible and a day off and a time of worship. So simple, but, verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. And before we get to the this, just remember one more time, he has just offered every possible blessing anyone could ever imagine wanting in life. Everything. I mean, just an unbelievable list of promises. But if you don't rest and worship and keep my word, I in turn will do this to you, verse 16, I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Do you know right now, 
what the, the newest pandemic is. They said there's a second pandemic that's, that's coming, a second wave that's following coronavirus, and it is the pandemic of anxiety. And they're saying very seriously that the world is being overwrought. People are being overwrought with anxiety. God says, yeah, if you don't rest, if you don't worship, you don't keep my word, I'm gonna bring that. Your soul is gonna pine away. Also, he says, you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. Remember before he was saying, I'll bless you, I'll give you power so that five of you will cause a hundred to flee. Now he's saying, you're gonna flee when no one's even coming after you. If also, verse 18, after these things, you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven more times, seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. And even in the worst of winter in the Northwest, we have not experienced an iron sky, my friends. He says, your strength will be spent uselessly and your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit if then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me. I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. And if by these things you are not turned to me, see, it's a progression here. I'm gonna do this much and see what you do. And you don't turn, I'm gonna do a little more. And you don't turn, I'm gonna do a little more, he's saying. And if by these things you have not turned to me, verse 23, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, 10 women will bake your bread in one oven. They will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Note that. Verse 18, verse 21, verse 24, and then summarizing in verse 28, God says, I will punish. He says, I will plague. He says, I will strike you seven times. And then the fourth time he says seven times, he, he, again, he summarizes the whole thing. I will punish you. He repeats the word punish. I will punish. I will strike. I will plague. I will strike seven times. Seven times for punishment. Seven times for plague. Seven times he says, I will strike. Now, you all know seven is a powerful number in biblical and Hebrew theology. That number of completion for God's will. Usually it's used of God's will and work. Usually we think seven and think, that's a great number. It's very positive. It's God completing all his goodness. 
But here, again, punish, plague, strike seven times. What's interesting to me is it's used of complete punishment. And Wenham calls this, it's a punishment because of a breach in the heart of the covenant. Remember, God's in covenant relationship here in the Mosaic covenant. And the people are despising the covenant and breaching the covenant and hostile to the covenant and their God. And he says, if that happens, then punish, plague, strike seven times. Think about that. That is a prophetic word, I believe, of the time of Jacob's distress. It's of the tribulation. Seven seal judgments, Revelation chapter 6. Seven trumpet judgments, Revelation 8 through 11. Seven vile or bowl judgments, Revelation 16. I will punish, I will plague, I will strike. How many times each? Seven times each. And it's the tribulation. God says, if, then. Verse 29, he continues saying further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. Mamas, can you imagine? Because that happened. This happened to Israel more than once. 586 B.C., the Babylonian incursion in A.D. 70 during the siege of, of Rome, residents in Jerusalem actually turned to cannibalizing their own dead children. And we have stories from Josephus talking about the Romans coming in and finding a mother feasting on the flesh of her baby who had died. So this isn't just, you know, it's interesting. I read through this last week. I was reading through chapter 26 and thinking there's so much poetry, it seems here. Everything's so, the way God describes things and so it's not poetic. This is literal. This is actual. If, if you don't rest, if you don't worship, if you don't keep my word, and if you become hostile, because see, that's the thing. If we don't rest, worship, and keep God's word, become, we become hostile to God. We start to turn against God. As we turn more and more toward the world, becoming more and more a friend of the world, rejecting the great release, the sweet release that he's given us, we become more and more hostile to him, not wanting to have anything to do to him or with him. And as we become hostile to him, that's, that's the threat. And that's what he's telling Israel here in the conditional Mosaic covenant. If this happens then all of this is going to fall on you. And my friends, everything talked about in Leviticus 26 in terms of the punishments has fallen on Israel throughout history. Verse 30, I will then destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. The indication there before the temple was ever even suggested by David. The indication is the destruction of the temple. I'm going to wipe out even that. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. And by the way, they were. You realize that from the first all the way to the 20th century, the nomadic tribes and the Arabic tribes hated the land. They never loved the land of Israel. They never wanted the land of Israel. They sold it at ridiculous, exorbitant prices to Jews who were just trying to get back the land the late 1800s and on into the early 1900s. But from the first to the 20th century, no one wanted the land of Israel 
but the Jews. They were the only ones who cared. But their enemies who lived on the land, they abhorred it. And it became an absolute desolation. Verse 33. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Shabbats all the days of the desolation. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it will not observe the rest, or it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. And at the sound of a driven leaf, it will chase them. Even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword and they will fall. You may be thinking the same thing I am. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, we've read so many times. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest, you will be saved in quietness and trust is your strength. Man, just rest. Keep my word, worship. But you were not willing. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. We will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one. You will all flee at the threat of five until your left is a flag on a mountaintop and a signal on a hill. Isaiah prophesied, God spoke through Isaiah exactly what he's speaking right here to Moses and to the people. Verse 37, they will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing. You'll have no strength to stand up before your enemies. It's a remarkable contrast with verse 8 above where the Lord says five of you will chase 100 and 100 of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. He says, if you do these simple things, but if you don't, then it's gonna be the exact opposite. You will perish, verse 38, among the nations and your enemy's land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. My friends, if you've ever seen pictures of the Holocaust, this was a people who literally rotted away. And everything that God describes here, every single one of these things, it happened. It took place, consumed rotting away how many times from Babylon to Rome to Hitler's death camps did the people experience this prophetic word and why because they wouldn't rest they wouldn't worship they didn't keep the word if then now for anyone who struggles in reading this last half of the chapter if you're thinking about the strict disciplinary um, nature of these warnings, three things to note. Number one, recognize that this was given as a deeply loving warning. It's not God saying this must happen, although prophetically everything he says here did. But he's warning them ahead. This is what will happen. And it's love. It is the love of a parent. 
They had a choice, as I said, to receive the immense blessings of God, the full release of the Lord. They could receive all of that in full or they could walk in rebellion and this will be the outcome. So if you touch the stove, Junior, your hand is going to burn. That is spoken with love. That is not mom being a jerk. Mom won't let me touch the stove. How unfair. Harsh, strict disciplinarian. She loves, therefore she says, don't do this. Don't just run across the street, Junior. Look both ways, check, make sure it's clear before you rush out there. Ah, come on, Mom, so heavy-handed. God lays out the warning because that's what love does. Second thing to note this, uh, Proverbs chapter three, verse 12, whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. That's the whole point. I love you so much. I got to tell you what's coming if you reject my offer of full release and redemption. Proverbs 13, 24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Verse 40, if, if he says, they confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humble so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then, watch this, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. It's back to the land. I'm gonna remember my covenant with the people and I'm gonna remember my land. And note this, get this. In that verse, verse 42, you might wanna mark this in your Bibles. The word with does not appear in the verse. We read it and we see it three times, but it's not in the verse. It's not, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. It's, I will remember my covenant, Jacob. And I will remember also my covenant, Isaac. And my covenant, Abraham, as well. I will remember the land. And Bonner suggests, and I think he's right, that God is speaking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will remember my covenant, Jacob, I'll remember my covenant, Isaac. I'll remember my covenant, Abraham. It's almost like there's this, in the middle of this prophetic word of God, there's this an aside where he speaks to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because remember what Jesus said, Matthew 22, 32? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So even here, as he's speaking to the people of Israel, 400 years after their enslavement in Egypt, he addresses Jacob and Isaac and Abraham as though telling them, I'll remember my covenant. Verse 43, for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Now listen, brace yourselves for this. That's all conditional. 
if then, if then, if then, all the way through the chapter until now. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am Yahweh, he says. And these are the statutes and the ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. The if-then conditional clause running all the way through this chapter stops. And suddenly, it becomes when. If-then, but now it's when. Why? Because the if-then conditional covenant of Moses is set against the canvas of the Jubilee. The backdrop of all of this, even the conditional covenant, is all of the unconditional promises of God that all surrounds it, and that all guarantees God's love for his land and for his people. Just as God had decreed the year of Jubilee, you will have, even, even when all this if-then happens, even after all of their thens, there's going to be a when. When they are in the land of their enemies, he says, I will not reject them. I've got them. I will not abhor them. I will not destroy them. I will remember my promises. And yet, they never kept Jubilee. They never accepted the fullness of the release of God. Not yet. However, Wenham writes, the Apostle Paul categorically asserts that God's covenant with the Israelites has not been invalidated by their unbelief. This is such good news. Just because they fail, just because they don't believe, just because they did not receive the promises in full and rejected even my jubilee, even so, it does not invalidate my covenant. Romans eleven twenty six, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer, Jesus, will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant. My covenant, my land, my people, my promises. This is my covenant I make with them when I take away their sins. Paul says from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You can mess it up all you want. God's gifts are irrevocable. And so what Leviticus 26 does here, as we conclude, is God asserts Israel's salvation. Again, in verses 30, 43 through 44, he drops the if-then and replaces it with when. So when all this happens, and it will, and we can sit here and say, yeah, it has. All of this. This reads like a history chapter for what's happened to Israel. But when all this happens, I will not reject them. I will remember my promises. And why? Why does he say he'll remember my promises? Verse 45, I am the Lord. I mean, it's like the biggest no-duh statement in the Bible. 
Why will God do this? Because that's who I am. Because as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. It's who he is. Leviticus 26 tells us that in both the Older Testament and the New Testament, in both Testaments, please get this, salvation and redemption come by the same thing, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. To the church, New Testament, to Israel, Older Testament. This, this chapter is perhaps the single greatest nullification of replacement theology in the Bible. You cannot read this and tell me that God has replaced the people of Israel with the church. That sick and wrong idea that God is through with the Jew, not even close. Not even close. Because he says, when all this has come down, I will not forget them. Why, Lord? Because I am the Lord. And if he is, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let me just finish with a question. Have you received everything God's intended for you tonight? Are you open to the fullness of release? All of the promises of God. See, he just lays them all out there. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They're all for you. The only thing that holds us back is us. Will we receive them all or will we receive this much? And eh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I believe those. Okay, then you won't get them until you do. Have you received the grace of God in Christ Jesus? Father, I pray that you help us. We see the example of Israel. It's remarkable, Lord. We watch the example down through the ages. We've seen all of Leviticus 26 play out before our very eyes. And yet we still don't fully receive promises. And I know, Lord, speaking for myself, but I think for everybody here tonight, there are promises that we have kept at bay. There are things you've given us, jubilees, times of rest, opportunities to just rejoice in you. And we've kind of said, ah, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I can accept that. Lord, would you crush our unbelief? Like the Father, Lord of the Son who, who is possessed, we cry out to you, I believe, help my unbelief. Because, Father, I want to receive the fullness of your release, the fullness of your redemption, the fullness of your blessings, not because I deserve it, but because you've offered it. And I don't want my lack of faith to rob me of any good thing that you have offered. And I pray for all of us, Lord, the prayer we pray so often, increase our faith. Increase our faith, Lord, to receive everything that you desire for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.